Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups. Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together, move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Harris and Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Was that just me? Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford, this is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, the Big Sister. Because life isn't easy. And sometimes we all need a Big Sister to call on. Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on all the things that matter. Life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. If you're a new listener to The Hotline, welcome. It's so wonderful to have you here. And if you've been with us from the start, then please know you are my favorite of my children and I love you. But joking aside, I want to thank everyone who has left such beautiful reviews on the Apple podcast site. Um, It makes me feel completely touched and utterly chuffed, and I'm grateful to be part of such a warm coven of brilliant humans. Now, each week on the hotline, I'm joined by a very special guest who brings their own brand of big sister expertise to help answer your dilemmas, conundrums, and straight up anxieties about life. This week, I'm welcoming one of the most powerful and admirable women I know. Through her long and glittering career, this young woman has been a TV host, DJ, producer and writer. She's hosted video hits, The Voice and the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. And if that weren't enough, she's also performed with the Sydney and Melbourne theatre companies. Oh, and did I mention she toured Australia and New Zealand as the resident DJ for a woman you might have heard of, Miss Oprah Winfrey. Faustina Agoli, welcome. Hey, Clementine. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? You're looking I'm feeling, marvelous and well. Thank you. I'm feeling great. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that I am doing COVID in Queensland. 
and it's just really bright and, <laughs> and really warm. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'm not complaining. A I can't <laughs> it does. It makes an enormous difference. It's 11 degrees in Melbourne here today, so uh, just so you know, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I announced that you were coming on the show this week, the response was understandably uh, incredibly enthusiastic because you were a much beloved person. For someone who is still so relatively young, you've had such a long career in Australia's music and television and pop cultural scene that... Um, it's almost astonishing to think of of how long you've been in the public consciousness and yet still have so much more ahead of you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess a lot of that had to do with the fact that when I started Video Hits, I began that while I was still at university. Um, I was super determined to get a job in television as a producer and or host of, of ideally music and if not something related to travel. And, you know, fortunately, I got the two in the one job um, when I still had, I think, a semester to go at Melbourne University and a semester to go at RMIT. So when I started at Network 10, I was flying between Network 10 in Sydney and going back to classes in Melbourne so that I could finish off both of those degrees. So perhaps that is also why that adds to the this longevity aspect was I just was ready to go. <laughs> Yeah. always ready yeah I was reading your story in um growing up African in, in Australia and firstly it was beautiful thank you so much for sharing such a personal story with everyone um but I what I really loved about it was the way that you um in talking about your father who passed away when you were a baby the journey that you go on obviously not only just in your life but also through this story and in, in recollecting that the connection that you formed with him through music mm. really touched on that, that sense, I think, of, you know, genetic recognition. Totally, totally. You know what, Clementine, the very first memory I had as a human being in this world, um, and this is not something that I mentioned in the book, but the very first memory I have is of when my family was migrating from London, because I was born in London, over to Melbourne, we stopped off in Malaysia for six months and that's because my mother is Chinese-Malaysian. And I have this visceral memory of sitting on a beach and then hearing the radio go on and it was some sort of pop song. And I remember getting up and I was learning how to walk and I just needed to shake it. I just needed to shake it on the beach to the song and I was moving and then everyone started cheering. <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> that is my first memory of life. Um, and to know that that is like deep within my roots, it's deep within my father's roots. Um, in the book, I, I talk about how I learn about his life posthumously through discovering his record collection, because grief was a very difficult thing for my family to process because he died suddenly from a car accident. But in finding those records and then seeing his handwritten his name had written on most of them made me understand this through line of having this life, just being such a fan of music and then being able to see some evidence, um, artifacts that confirmed that to me through DNA, 
you know, um, and through my roots. So that was, yeah, it was a beautiful moment. Because he passed away when you were so young, you mentioned at the start of the story that for a long time you felt strange referring to him as dad because you didn't know that much about him. And obviously it was an incredibly difficult thing for your mother to speak about. So he was a figure in your life who clearly had, you know, a great deal of importance, but there was a barrier between you and him, and it was the discovery of these records, you know, that had been in your auntie's garage for 13 years before anyone had found them, this discovery of this, these records that began to, to not just bridge the gap between you and your dad, but bridge the gap of years. I remember after my mum died, going through her books because she was a furious collector of books and being struck differently by seeing you know, Luciana Gavaya scrawled in the inside page, which was her name before she got married. And uh-huh. having that kind of strange sort of sense recognition of of something, you know, mysterious pulsating around the edges of your existence, that there is life teeming there and you just needed to reach out and, and find a way to touch him. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And And he does feel very present in my life despite the fact that he passed away 36 years ago. So um, it's something that I'm just forever living through his legacy. And I think in many ways you would feel the same too, that you are an extension of your mother's legacy, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, different because uh, she died when I was 25, but I I can appreciate that the, how that loss feels for me having had almost three decades of getting to know her and experience of her being in my life, I can appreciate at least some small glimpse that for you and for anyone else who's lost a parent really young, that there is the sense of of wanting to know more, but not feeling like you, you're able to, or, or maybe even entitled to, because who is this person? I can feel that keenly. Mm. One of the things I really loved in your story as well where is where you talk about going back to Ghana as a teenager because, of course, your mother is Malay Chinese, so you grew up with this strong Chinese influence in your life, but it was going back to Ghana as a teenager that it seemed to me, at least in reading it, that you were able to connect with that side of your culture and that side of your your history and your existence in your life. Yeah, it was enormous, Clementine. It really shifted gears for me, mum took money off the mortgage for us all to fly there. It was my first overseas trip since migrating to Australia. And that all came about because um, my dad's sister, so my auntie, she had flown to London to our old house, (laughs) found that we weren't there at the door. And then a neighbour had said, oh, they moved to Australia like 16 years ago. And so got our phone number and then we just got this phone call out of the blue. And mum said it was really important for us to know our Ghanaian side. And when we went over there, it was like completely different to the life I knew in Melbourne. Um, You know, uh, instead of, you know, being around, I I grew up in a very multicultural suburb of Clayton um, in the 90s. And to go move from there to Ghana where everyone was dark skinned and like it was just so fascinating to be like whoa this is part of our home here and then to be welcomed in by my grandmother who was alive then and literally the first thing she says in her own dialect was you look just like your father and that was very very moving for all of us um and it was 
incredible. We we got to explore so much of our culture, um, and I got to find out that I'm literally a part of a tribe, like a literal tribe, not how we we use that word colloquially today. Um, and to know that I have deep ancestral roots, um, it was an incredible experience. And I think it's one of those things that I, I'm still unpacking today because there's so much in that. But I, it really did make me level up as a person. I came back to Australia feeling more whole. Um, mm. And I also was aware of the privileges I had having and the sacrifices that were made by my dad and by my mum for going to London, trying to get a better way of life for them to send money home at times to their respective countries, to their families, and then also to for them to extend their careers because both countries were colonised by Britain. So, of course, you're going to, like, there's going to be mass migration back to England to some at some level. And for them, they were they were trained to be nurses. So... Um, I understood the legacy a lot more and didn't take my school for granted. I was a real kind of brat. I would do anything to kind of rebel school. And I still would today because I don't like the system, quotes, unquote, the system and just how mm -hmm. we're taught. But in that moment, I thought, okay, if I really want to like kill it, I need to comply to the system a bit. So I applied myself at school, didn't really like being in an all-girls Catholic school, but I, I just applied myself. I sat in front of the classroom and did the work and then excelled. And then that's what got me into doing, you know, getting into a media career or picking whatever course I wanted to do. And then I really felt unstoppable at that point. I was like, I literally can manifest what I want in my life and I'm going to go get it. And, um, you know, I went from like a DC, sometimes an E student to a straight A plus student, smashed the VCE. I just, I just figured it out. And I also have learning difficulties. So the way that I figured it out was by um, making sure that I did a lot of the work over the summer and then working with a tutor ahead of the class. So that by, by the time the coursework arrived during class, during school, I was, I was onto it. I knew what was up. And I was just more prepared. And so that was my way around my learning challenges. And a lot of that actually I've been, I, I got assessed a couple of years ago. I do present with ADHD qualities. So I think that that was the reason why I was just anti the system. The system's not good for people who, who lack the tools to be able to function as it demands of them, you know, and that and that is, as you said, that's a source of privilege itself, you know, for people who can go, to school and just bluff their way through it yeah, and then go on through life and bluff their way through it. The system is designed for that privilege. Oh, totally, totally. It is totally designed for that privilege. And I, I think my life's work is to hack the system somehow. I've been able to, <laughs> I've been able to be able to, to, to successfully do it in many respects and I'm still figuring out today it's, it's all a game to me. It really is. Um, the media is a game to me. Um, uh, you know, storytelling through media is a game to me. I've just got to figure it out and 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 get my way through the system. Without wanting to, you know, be too reductive or trite, I think one of the most powerful things that you represent, particularly to young black queer women in Australia, mm. is this visibility that you've um, 
that you not just have assumed but that you've really embraced and embodied. You came out a few years ago and that was an enormously brave thing to do. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, Likewise, Clementine. Well, it's very different for me because the the privileges are obviously in place. Um, Coming out in the sense that I did offered no real, uh, for me personally, this is what I believe, it offered no real damage or risk to my life. So uh, I I appreciate that that was probably very different for you. So again, congratulations and thank you for being such a staunch person. Um, But I just wanted to ask you about that transition, I guess, from a few weeks ago, Jordan Raskopoulos was on the show and, you know, she came out as trans a few years ago and has been on her own journey, as she said, towards pride. And she talked very eloquently about the difference between a journey towards self-acceptance and that journey towards pride Mm. and how the latter is something that both healing and also powerful and and something we should hold centrally within ourselves when we're going through that that journey and again I would say to any young queer people who are listening to this who are maybe grappling with some of some of that internalized uh homophobia or biphobia or queerphobia or you're you are not surrounded by supportive people in your life that to echo Jordan's thoughts one of that one of the most important things that we can do and be supported in is that journey towards pride do you feel like you are you have achieved pride or that you have, does that resonate with you in any way? Totally. It totally has. Um, I definitely had to go through that journey. It was, okay, here's, here's the rub of it. In my mid-20s, like in the last year of me hosting video hits, I had a sense that I was like gay. I had then, and I was fine with it. I was, I was surprised, but it felt right. And for me, very interestingly, it came, it came through a dream and people were like, how could it come through a dream? And then all of a sudden you wake up and you say that you're gay. Um, it was because it was deeply informative. And I think me in a restful state, lying down, not allowing the outside world to tell me what to think or do and allowing my subconscious mind to speak truthfully to me and remind me of who I was, just happened to be my story. Um, the problem that I had, and this was, it was when I woke up, I told my then male cis white male partner that I thought that I was gay. And the reaction was that he immediately made it about himself, which I guess is a natural That doesn't reaction. sound like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it was a very selfish response for him rather than trying to just hear the truth of it. Um, I then went back into the closet somehow and then felt like, Oh shit. I, I, I just, I became instantly ashamed. And then um, it happened again with a relationship following him and the person that I had, I had the same dream again, Clementine, and it was being in an intimate relationship with another woman. It felt like a woman. It felt true to me. It felt blissful and it felt complete. And um, I then told that male partner who I thought I was and um, that partner decided to not say anything in the moment. But during the relationship as it unfolded, that's when the barb started to shoot at me. 
and that's when you know that I started to hear verbal homophobia and emotional abuse started to come through so um that messed me up for almost a good decade um and I I became closeted again didn't realize like just kind of shut that out of my life entirely and it wasn't until while I think I was doing The Voice, I was co-hosting The Voice at the time, and I think the brilliancy of that job was that you could, I could just be in Australia for like three or four months host, and then I had enough time for the rest of the year to just travel, and I just needed to travel. I just needed to get out of this comfortability that was Australia and um, be in the world. And it wasn't until I saw a bunch of queer women in London Um, that I then realised who I was again. So it's been a long-ass journey, but with that came a lot of shame. Whereas back when I was 24, 25, there was no shame because it just felt Mm. honest. And so I've had to spend the last many years unpacking all of that shame and creating these mental through lines with multiple therapists. Oh, my God. The amount of money that has been spent on therapy, Jesus. <laughs> um, just to unpack those through lines and to see the root causes of it. And it hasn't necessarily come from me. It's come from people's reactions and how I've digested it. And I had to get to a point that I was comfortable within myself that when I came out, I just wanted to accept the people in my life that were willing to champion that and be supportive of that when I needed to. And, um, and I wrote a very sincere email to members of my family before I came out, I I came out on my 31st birthday with a giant rainbow cake in LA. I just happened to be living in LA at the time, but that week I decided to email my family before, you know, posting an, an image on the internet and just sharing the experience with others. And the reason why I did was just so that I could let people know and control my story myself. I didn't want to be outed by anybody else. Um, But in my letter, I pointed to the fact that I just wanted them to know how difficult it was to get there, the arc of my life and the the challenges I faced through the exes and how even though I didn't have a bruised eye or even though I didn't have broken bones, that the abuse impacted me deeply. And there were no visible scars. But and was scar- real. And was real. And the, 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 scar- the internal scars were real. And I, and I had said that I've come to the point in my life that, you know, I love you. I can understand to a degree if you're not willing to accept me for who I am. My hope is that you will. Um, but I'm, I'm happy within myself. I hope that you can be a part of my life. But if you choose not to, that's fine as well. I just left it at that. That that's when I think that's when I knew that I was in my power entirely. That I wasn't anymore looking for love outside of myself. I'm good. I'm good. I'm gonna create a beautiful life for myself. I'd rather it be with you as the people that I love, but it can be without you, if that's the case. So and I think it, it all came because I was just sick and tired of being made to feel shit. And I shouldn't be made to feel that way. So that I think was my journey. I And I just found it through self-analysis and understanding how the world is designed. And, um, and I knew that I could make my own comfortable, 
celebratory safe space within a world that could potentially be chaotic. The dream made you feel whole and complete. Mm. And I, I love that feeling of recognising that this thing inside that so often people are made to feel like they need to hide or that they need to, to come to some kind of, you know, quote unquote acceptance of is actually not something that takes anything away from you. It's something that makes you whole mm-hmm. and it makes you complete and perfect exactly the way that you are. And mm-hmm. to, to celebrate love, there's nothing shameful about that. Yeah, not at all. On that beautiful note, shall we get to the questions? Let's do it. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Faustina Agoli are doctors, psychologists, or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who won't be bound by your rigid heteronormativity. (laughs) Is this it? asks. Hi, big sisters. Here's the thing. My partner and I have been together for just over 18 months. For reference, I'm 40 and they're a couple of years younger than me. We're living together these last six months and it's good and probably the best relationship either of us have ever had. So what's the problem? The issue is I love them, but sometimes I worry that maybe I don't. And if this relationship isn't forever, part of me thinks, then what? I can't face the thought that later down the track I'll be pushing 50 and back on dating apps or something. And if it doesn't work out, then I think I'll just have to stay single forever because I also can't face going through all the getting to know you stage and saying I love you for the first time and when sex becomes even better because you care about each other so much not just because they're a good shag, just for it all to end because everything ends. (laughs) I'm not laughing at you, questioner. I relate strongly. Is it normal to worry about if you love someone enough or in the right way or all the time? Or maybe it's just a side effect of being in lockdown together. I've stayed in bad relationships before because it was too hard to imagine not being together and I'm determined not to do that again. I'm reassured that it is definitely not the case here. So maybe I'm just too cautious watching out for signs that it won't work. There's a lot in there to unpack. There's so much to unpack. There's so much to unpack. Okay. Damn it. I go first. Okay. This makes me think of the San Juna, the Black Mirror episode called San Junipero. So beautiful. It's so freaking beautiful. It is a triumph of, of, of television. The thing that I love about, there's many things that I love about that episode, but there's one particular thing that I love about that episode where uh, the character played by Gugu Mbatha Raw, the fabulous black woman, she, um, I think that she's kind of in an argument with the Yorkie character and she's talking about her mm-hmm. previous relationship and it was so freaking honest. It was like such great writing. And I wish I could pull up that part of the script right now. But one of the things that she said was talking about like the full life that she had with this male partner. And then she was like, words to the effect of, cause I'm fucking butchering the lines right now, but like, you know, the beautiful times. But then she said the boredom, she talked about the boredom in the relationship that she had before yet she still yearned for the possibility of potentially seeing him in another dimension when she died. And Mm. I was like, yo, no true words have been spoken about a relationship because there will be times most likely that you will be sick of your partner 
and you'll be freaking bored. And then there'll be times when you need to kind of work on the relationship and finesse things and to find new ways of relatability. And I guess the question that I have back on our dear uh, little sister, is this it? I would say, you know, there's, there's gotta be some introspection and it isn't actually about the partner. I think it's a, this is more of a question for themselves the little sister of like what it is about your life and your life in relationships that you need and want what is okay what isn't okay because there's a lot in there that also was a bit red flaggy for me of of I can't be bothered doing the dating app again I can't be bothered saying that I'm in love for the first time so there isn't a lot of effort I feel I'm just calling it how I see it I love you, little sister, but I'm That's calling what you're it how here I for. see it. I'm calling it how I see it. So, <laughs> excuse me, I have really bad asthma during COVID and it's really scary, but I don't have COVID. I got tested. I'm good. Um, so excuse me for coughing. But um, I, I would say that I think a lot more introspection needs to happen for little sister um, to understand, like, what effort she could be putting in this relationship right now. Because if I'm hearing... I can't be bothered, you know, to be 50 and be on dating apps and stuff. Then I'm thinking that some balls are being dropped in this current relationship where she could also level up. Yeah. I, I think that that's uh, insightful and, you know, oftentimes my experience, um, as again, just the disclaimer that I'm not a trained therapist at all, <laughs> but my experience of having received a lot of these emails uh, while doing the podcast is that, um, oftentimes you're able to read between the lines of what's being said. My instinct is always that if someone is asking whether or not they should leave their partner, that it's obviously something that they've thought about um, for a long time before they've bothered to email someone about it. Now that may be because of something, that, some dissatisfaction that they've, they're having in the relationship or the lack of effort that they're putting in or that their partner is putting in. But for me, reading this email, some of the things that that jumped out to me were um, firstly the fear of being 50 and being back on dating apps. So I think that because this person, this little sister is 40 years old, I think that a lot of that is being influenced by a general kind of um, hostility towards women who age in our culture. For real. And the sense of being once you get to a certain age, all of a sudden, all of the things that made you, that gave you currency while you were younger, you know, in your twenties and then a little bit in your thirties, suddenly are not so, so um, present anymore. I think a lot of women are made to feel afraid of the prospect of growing old alone and what that Mm -hmm. might mean. And anyone staying in a relationship because they fear being single and, and, and how that will position them in society, how that will make people judge them, or whether or not they even trust that they can be happy by themselves. Because, of course, we're also taught that we need a relationship and preferably a relationship with a man to be satisfied and to have some sense of purpose in life. Then I think it can be very frightening to stare down the barrel of those years where you suddenly do recognise that maybe your, your currency is diminishing in a patriarchal sexist system. Damn, Clementine, that's such a sharp analysis. <laughs> oh, thanks. I also really agree with you and appreciate what you're saying about the ebbs and flows of excitement in a relationship. A lot of relationships get real boring and that's because the we've been fed this 
belief that the the best and most perfect of relationships are always flush with the feeling of first love as opposed to well we've been together for 18 months and the sex is very nice but it's not as exciting as it was when we were first discovering each other's bodies i mean that's just for me this is one of the terrible realities of of life is that i don't think that i'm a polyamorous person i've i have thought about it deeply i, I but i don't think i can do it because I am probably emotionally someone who wants to connect with one person. And yet at the same time, it makes total sense to me that you would have an open relationship and be, you know, be drawn to polyamory. And I, to anyone who is polyamorous out there or non-monogamous, I, I'm not at all trying to interpret um, your lives in a, in a crude way or to misrepresent what it is that and how meaningful those interactions and those relationships are for you. Um, so I apologize if if I've butchered that analysis. Um, but yeah, to, to me, it's a terrible kind of dilemma to want to emotionally uh, be committed to one person maybe for the rest of your life, but also feel incredibly suffocated at the thought of having sex or a relationship only with them for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think a lot of this comes back to how we frame or how we've had relationships framed for us, particularly for women in the world that we live in, which is... Uh, it's not expected that we can be satisfied by ourselves and it's not expected that, you know, people might listen to you say, um, well, I'm very happy being single or I, I have a lot of satisfaction in my life. I like my relationships with my friends and I like not having to tolerate someone else living in my house. But I think for a lot of people, there'll always be a shred of disbelief when they hear a woman say that because we still struggle to understand what that looks like for women. Mm. Um, so in this case for uh, you know, is this it? I'm wondering as well whether or not they are dissatisfied in the relationship or they're not, their needs, their excitement needs are not being met or maybe they're not meeting their partner's excitement needs or whatever it might be, but they feel like they should stay in it because that's what's expected of them or they feel like if they leave, then they'll be making a fundamental mistake because the only thing worse than being sort of vaguely unhappy in a relationship is being single. That may not be the case, though. It may just be that you are experiencing the natural ebb of having spent 18 months with someone and needing to discover new exciting things about Absolutely. them and with them. And, you know, as, you, as she said, you know, they're in lockdown. There's only so much you can discover about a partner in lockdown before you're like, oh, shut <laughs> up. <laughs> I think what would be really wonderful is that if – uh, is this it was opening up dialogue with their partner and if they were allowed to both feel safe into speaking the truth of their doubt. I've only had that truthfulness in my current relationship and this is with a woman um, that I've been dating for almost a year now. Um, and it's been incredible to be really honest about doubting things and doubting what's going on in our heads and, and saying, Hey, am I thinking right about X, Y, and Z? Um, and to be able to get to that point is really incredible. Um, one thing that I would see as like an awesome resource is red table talks by Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh, I love her. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So, um, my, the woman that I'm currently dating, she's obsessed with that series as well. 
and loves just how honest they are and and able to excavate feelings. And maybe some of the issue is that um, there is a sense that there is you feel hamstrung or not being able to have the freedom to speak the truth in a in your relationship situation, or perhaps you can't find the exact words. But I don't think that in this particular situation there is an issue with verbalizing what you're experiencing. But I feel like that's watching something like that and hopefully together with your partner or partners can help facilitate a language and a safe space to to improve your relationship situation with that person and to see more of them. Um, I think the ideal scenario is to be able to discover more about your partner over time. And yes, of course, there's going to be times when you're bored or pissed off with them, but there's going to be, you'd hope that you can get past through that and maybe the live, the love does become deeper. Who knows? Absolutely. I mean, opening lines of communication and increasing communication is always a good thing. And, and if nothing else, even if it does cause a relationship to end, it's because you've gone through a process of honesty with each other. Mm -hmm. Every one of us, not just the person asking this question, needs to examine what it means to us to love in the right way, which is something that she said, you know, how is it normal to worry about if you love someone enough or in the right way? Well, what does that look like? Because the only the only right way to love, as far as I'm concerned, is with respect and integrity and honesty. And that may look very different for lots of different people. Um, we also need to become really comfortable with the become comfortable with the knowledge and with the the reality that relationships come and go in our life and whatever experience we have in them, sometimes it can be extremely negative. Hopefully we always learn something from those relationships, but that the right way to love isn't finding someone and staying with them for the next 60 years. That may be right for some people, but it's not necessarily the formula for happiness. Mm -hmm. A natural part of loving people is the possibility that that love may come to an end and that you may experience some form of heartbreak. And so to go into, while I understand sometimes the impulse to think, well, I can't be bothered getting involved with anyone else because everything ends and we'll just, I don't want to go through all of those firsts again with someone else. I love you and getting to know them and telling them all my stories. God, I can't hear my stories again. I understand that. It is laborious. But at the same time, that's part of what makes the relationships that are worthwhile really good is because mm-hmm. you don't tell them all the things again. You find new stories to tell them and you create new stories with each other. And if those relationships do come to a natural conclusion, it doesn't mean that you failed in some way and it doesn't mean that they were a waste of time. It means that this was a period of your life where you, you had some wonderful memories with someone and you experienced something truly human and that phase came to an end and it was, it was what it was. And then you move on to the next thing. Amen. <laughs> which we are going to do right now mm-hmm. as we move to another question. Now, I just want to do a little preamble to this question and just to let all the listeners know that I have discussed this with Faustina beforehand because it's it's this conversation that we're about to have is potentially um, 
Well, it almost certainly requires a lot of labour from you, Faustina, and it's one that I think people in positions of privilege, in this case people like me who are white and uh, expect labour of people of colour to explain <coughs> racism or unpack racism for are not always um, willing to or even cognizant to the fact that we need to explore that privilege before we expect the labour of you. So this is a question that was submitted specifically because Faustina was coming on the show and, and someone wanted an, an answer to it and and some guidance, I suppose, on, on how they can unpack their privilege in their role as an event organiser. And so, yes, I want to just preface this by saying thank you so much for providing this labour and to any white people listening out there and to anyone, in fact, who experiences privilege over another group of people, whether or not you're white, whether or not you're a man, whether or not you're able-bodied, cisgender, straight, whatever it might be, understand that it is not the role of the oppressed and discriminated against class to provide labour and education for you, particularly if you're not willing to go out and seek that education from the numerous and copious amounts of content that has already been written and provided by people who are best placed to answer those questions. So having said that, here is the question, unpacking privilege rights. I run a predominantly women's motorcycle festival slash campout that is open to femmes, cis and or trans women, trans masculine as well as non-binary folk. It's a unique and incredible Aussie moto rally that has been gaining a lot of traction and getting exponentially bigger and better over the years. I've received some feedback from one of the attendees um, that really irked me for several reasons, mainly because of how it was put. I won't get into that, but the gist of the complaint was that we are not inclusive enough to anyone who is non-white. I have to admit that personally I have felt the event to be very white and any photos that get taken at the event and used to promote it is essentially just another image of a white girl on a motorcycle. I have personally invited and handed flyers to motorcyclists of all backgrounds, regardless of race, sexuality, or skin color. As an organizer, it never even once entered my mind that it was only for white people or that we were not an inclusive event. We have had people of color attend every year, but it is obviously definitely predominantly white. The person who submitted the complaint is white and felt the need to speak up, and now I am left wondering what I can do to be more inclusive. Is this done in the marketing of the event? Am I being an ignorant white bitch? I feel that the event is very specialist and admittedly most of the moto scene in Melbourne tends to be cis white women. Maybe this is the part where I start to sound defensive, but I've lived in several cities around the world, mainly Melbourne, New York City, Toronto and London. Every city I've found my friendships group or even just going out to a gig to be a lot more diverse and multicultural than my Melbourne experience. I am the same person in all these cities, yet I look around at my groups in Melbourne and everyone is white. As multicultural as us Inner North crew like to think we are, I'm not seeing much evidence of it. So I have to admit that putting on an event near Melbourne that turns out to be predominantly white does not really feel like my doing. But nevertheless, I am keen to know what I could do better or how I can promote my event to be more inclusive to people of colour and very keen to hear both your thoughts and suggestions. Now, I read that question out mainly in full rather than um, summarising it because there's a lot in there that I think we should talk about. Yeah, there's heaps in there, Clementine. Um, <clears throat> I think I'm going to preface my answer with I'm going to be quite precise and at times limited in the feedback that I'm going to give to this question only because there is so much in there that if you were to analyse it, I would hope that the person receiving the message can hear me fully rather than being defensive and based on my life's experience of talking to people about diversity and inclusion 
I usually get nowhere. Let's be real. Mm. Let's be real here. White women don't want to know their privilege a lot of the time. Very rarely, I have very few white friends that understand this topic quite thoroughly. So I think my question back over to you, uh, Clementine, is why did you feel that it was important to bring this up in the first place? Like, what is it about, what do you want your audience to get out of this process? I was hesitant to ask you whether or not you were comfortable answering this question because I was, uh, I didn't want to put this labour on you, but I also didn't want to assume that you wouldn't want to address this if you, if you were given... I mean, the opportunity is the wrong word, but I didn't want to make any assumptions on your part. So I asked you beforehand whether or not you would be comfortable answering the question um, and was aware that there was no real perfect approach to it. I suppose I thought, as I said to you, the, the listenership to this podcast is almost certainly predominantly young white women. And as you said, I think that people who have privilege are often not willing to engage with that privilege. I would also think that probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast value and rate themselves as being really progressive and yet are good when it comes to issues of sexism, but really I couldn't, I couldn't guarantee that they're great when it comes to issues uh, of racism. My own experience is that I know that, uh, you know, speaking to men about issues of gender equality makes a lot of them extremely uncomfortable and they can oftentimes become aggressive in response. And I've observed that also in white people becoming aggressive in response to discussions of racism. I, you know, for me, my, my process or my journey, if you want to call it that, or one thing that I've kind of discovered about myself and engaging with issues of racism is that um, I don't think that anyone can say I'm a good person when they experience structural privilege over another group of people. What we can do is we can say I am I am constantly trying to move towards a state of being a better person because as long as we live in a culture and in a society that is structurally disadvantageous to so many groups of people, if we are the people who benefit from that structural disadvantage, then we can't just you know, say, well, I'm not doing it. I'm not part of that. So I, I'm not really, I don't have a requirement to be a part of the solution either. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe I shouldn't have forwarded the question to you. Maybe I should have scrapped it. I, I think that even in asking you to do it, I acknowledge that there was a degree of, I'm asking you to do labor that is difficult for you and that you probably have to do every day. So I do acknowledge that and I apologize. I don't know that that apology is, is enough and it shouldn't be enough. Um, but I guess fundamentally I wondered whether or not it would be helpful to have people who are listening to this podcast be able to have that recognition in themselves and, and listen to it and know that it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a, t a terrible thing and it shouldn't be something we feel defensive about to sit in our discomfort and to feel targeted or to feel like we are having a conversation that is very uncomfortable for us and that maybe we don't like ourselves very much in because mm -hmm. that is where true change comes from. Mm -hmm. Is Do you have an intention for, because uh, you do have such a, an enormous following of um, women and it's particularly white women who 
embrace mm. feminism and so broadly is it your intention that you hope that the feminism becomes more intersectional well i mean yeah i hope so i, I can't claim that i'm it's interesting to me that i often see white women describe themselves as intersectional feminists um and i'm not saying that that's a wrong thing to do but i wonder whether or not that's something we can just claim for ourselves because mm. is it enough just to say I'm an intersectional feminist if my actions don't always reflect that? Mm. Um, if, I'm, if as an able-bodied person, if I'm not constantly engaging with issues of ableism or being aware of, you know, say if I do an event, if I'm not constantly saying to myself, I need to check the access issues of this event, I need to check, um, you know, I need to check whether or not the people who've been invited to this event are if they've if there's an Auslan interpreter or whatever it might be, you mm -hmm. know, to use a different example, then can I really claim to be an intersectional feminist? Right. Um, I don't. I don't know that I can, and I. I don't think that. I mean, obviously, there's been a there's been times in my life where I've become in, incredibly defensive about being accused of like, even using that word accused is is wrong, but being called out or called in even on mm -hmm. my shortcomings. And what I hope I've learned through that experience is that feeling defensive is a sign that you've got something to feel defensive about. And, and if you lean into that discomfort of, of what def being defensive means, then actually you are being provided with a very generous opportunity to change totally. and, to, and to move towards something better than what. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think the way that I, I mean, I do, I did find that question really mm. interesting. And the only reason why I said yes to answering it, because I felt like it was really a predominant question of our time. There are so many events now where women can come together and there is definitely a lack of diversity and inclusion in pretty much all of them. And, um, and you can see that prevalent in all the industries, even in my industry, in media and entertainment. So I felt like this was a wonderful opportunity to face this head on with tools for people who are willing to listen to this podcast in, in the tools that I am offering in response to this question um, to move further. And it is actually my hope. Clementine, if you don't mind, like I was thinking that with, with in answering this question, I was wondering whether or not um, that this person could process what I'm about to say and potentially come back to this uh, podcast in eight weeks and tell me mm -hmm. what they have learnt about themselves and of the environment and what they now see. I just put that question. Yeah, great. Great, 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 great. So. And the reason why I say this is because there's only so much I can say in a podcast or in on a panel of Q&A or in a soundbite because yeah. this, this, this work is not simple. And I'm sure that the expectation of my answer, you want quick results, you want quick answers. And that was implicit in the question where it was like, do I change the marketing of my event? Do I put more people of colour in there? And I feel like this is beyond optics. This is beyond outwardly looking diverse. There has got to be a lot of internal work at play. 
So that said, I feel like the best resource for this to unpack so much that I cannot work that I cannot deliver in this podcast, as you said, that requires a lot of labor. It's not possible to do that in a podcast, but the resource that I am offering is um, to purchase the book, Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Said. And the reason why I say this is because it's not just a book that you read. There are a lot of books that you can read about racism and feminism and trying to be a better person in this world. But this, this particular book is something that you can do as opposed to read. This is a tool. It's a workbook. And um, Layla is um, an awesome woman who started this particular book, which is now published. But prior to this, it was, some, it was like a 28-day challenge on Instagram. And it allowed white people to unpack biases and unpack their role of privilege and to see how their choices, their decisions, the way that they verbalise things are impacting a broader community, particularly by POC people. So I hope that there is a level of humility there in receiving this message. I think people are going to be quite, some people might be um, defensive even by the title, me and white supremacy. And that's because when we think of white supremacy, a lot of the time, we think it's like this small group of people that outwardly say super racist things that fly around the Confederate flag. If you live in the United States, sometimes it appears here in Australia. Um, and are intentionally racist. The definition of white supremacy is actually quite broader. It is the people that don't intend ever, who think that they are, uh, you know, think that the world is is progressive or they're doing the work of, pro you know, progressive work and they might have people of colour that are friends or lose friends overseas. Like, um, it, and, and they're not realising that, perhaps some of the things that they do that they do and say um, that is rooted by the things that they think are impacting people of colour. So, um, and they've also, like you say many times, Clementine, you've been, because you are white, you, you've been able to be so privileged as well um, through a system of whiteness. I'll give you the example, your book, you probably had an easier ride writing the manuscript and publishing your book because there was a whole bunch of usually white women in that publishing house that would have championed you and supported you and not questioned you at literally every turn. But I can tell you right now, a person of colour trying to publish a book in 2020 <laughs> will face questions at every single turn. And that is like the exact, that's just a micro example of, of, of the privileges, the privilege between you and the game that I have to hack mm. for a person like myself. Right. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is read you the foreword of the book written by um, a woman who does anti-racist work. Her name is Robin D'Angelo. She has a book called uh, White Fragility. That is also a book that I would say that people who are willing to do this work should also read because it is incredible and it can actually give a blueprint to the kind of conditioning that our fellow white friends have had ever since they were born. Um, but this is, but this is the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the forward from um, Robin D'Angelo for Layla F. Said's book, Me and White Supremacy. All right, you say, I get it. Now what do I do? I'm a white anti-racist educator 
Invariably, the number one question I am asked by a white participant at the end of a presentation is, what do I do? It may seem a reasonable thing to ask upon realizing that you are complicit in white supremacy, yet this question is problematic. First and foremost, it is problematic because I believe it is disingenuous. It has been my consistent experience leading anti-racist education for the last 25 years that most white people don't really want to know what to do about racism if it will require anything of them that is inconvenient or uncomfortable. Indeed, asking this question is a way to mitigate or deflect feelings of racial discomfort. While the racist status quo is comfortable for me literally 24 seven as a white person, challenging the racist status quo is not. Building the racial stamina required to challenge the racist status quo is thus the critical part of our work as white people. Rushing ahead to solutions, especially when we have barely begun to think critically about the problem, bypasses the necessary work and reflection and distances us from understanding our own complicity. In fact, racial discomfort is inherent to an authentic examination of white supremacy. By avoiding this racial discomfort, the, the racist status quo is protected. The entitled demand for simple answers also allows us to dismiss the information if those answers are not forthcoming. She didn't tell us what to do. This is especially arrogant when the demand is made of black, indigenous and people of color by POC or BIPOC. In essence, you are saying you do all the work and take all the risk and hand me the fruits of your labor. I will sit back and receive them while taking no personal risk myself. And what happens when we don't like these an those answers because they're not quick, convenient or comfortable? When the answers challenge our self-image of open-minded progressive individuals free of racial conditioning. As BIPOC people have experienced again and again, when we don't agree with the answers we have demanded, we all too often feel qualified to dismiss them. White supremacy is arguably the most complex social system of the last several hundred years. If only the answer was to be nice and keep smiling. But of course, there are no easy answers to ending white supremacy. In my effort to speak back to the question of what to do next, I've begun to ask a counter question. How have you managed not to know? In the era of Google and social media, the information on uh, what white people can do about racism is everywhere. And by POC people have been telling us what they need for a very long time. Why haven't we sought out the information on our own up until now? Why haven't we looked it up as we would for any other topic that, it, that has interested us? Asking white people why they don't already know the answer is meant to be a challenge to the apathy about white supremacy that I've come to believe most white people feel. But it is also a sincere question if we actually made a list on why we don't, don't know what to do. We would have a guide to moving, to moving forward. Nothing on that guide would be simple or easy to change, but change would be possible. Your list might look something like this. I wasn't educated about racism. I don't talk about racism with other white people. I don't talk about racism with the people of color in my life. I don't have people of color in my life. I don't want to feel guilty. I haven't cared enough to find out. 
Layla F. Sad has given us a roadmap for addressing each of the above points and more. This book is a gift of compassion from a brilliant black woman willing to guide you through a deep examination of white racial conditioning in service of your liberation. Me and White Supremacy is an extraordinary new resource for white people willing to align what they profess to value, racial equality, and their actual practice of anti-racist action. In a clear and accessible way, Sad has answered the question. Now each time I am asked by a white person, what do I do? My answer will always include work through this book. And so that is the foreword by Robin D'Angelo. And my my offer my offering in, in in response to this is let's give it eight weeks. I hope that our dear motorcyclist friend can process this book, which takes 28 days to do, four weeks, and then perhaps another book on this list that I'm about to mention, which is you could also read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. In fact, I I would say that that is like compulsory. <laughs> and there's also the books Why I No Longer Talk to White People about race by Renietto Lodge. So you want to talk about race by Ingeoma Oluo. Um, and then um, those ones are like guides for you. I could go on on a massive list of other things that you could read or see or watch or ingest, but I feel like those particular books, especially the workbook, will be able to guide you through um, in seeking the answers for something that I'm sure would, is making you feel super frustrated right now and defensive right now and and you needing to say that, listen, I've travelled to the world and I have friends and that are different you know races and you know and um you know i'm i'm an inclusive event and people aren't just showing up like this this book will give you answers and solutions eventually if the work is inward like deep inward work deep compassionate inward work i'm gonna get uh that book too and work through it over the next 28 days and i'm not telling you that to be like i'm gonna do it and i'm such a good girl um but yeah, I mean, I, even in having this conversation with you, it's uncomfortable for me, like, because we're so trained to believe that our efforts, our minimal basic efforts when you're in the privileged class should be acknowledged somehow. And, uh, yeah, I think I need that book too. Thank you so much for reading that and for very generously agreeing to answer that question. I think everyone listening, if you, if, if, and the fact that you probably are feeling uncomfortable, don't shy away from that feeling of discomfort and don't switch off and say, well, that, that woman on that show made me feel bad um, mm -hmm. because we should feel bad. And it's, you know, I always say in, in terms of uh, changing with gender equality is that being nice never got anyone anywhere. Mm -hmm. And if you want to change the surface area of the lake and the surface you know, makeup of a lake, you have to throw a big boulder into the middle of it. You can't gently place a pebble at the edge. So we're the lake right now and a big boulder you might have felt has been thrown in the middle of you and that's great. Lean into what that feels like and allow yourself the, the in amongst all of the privileges we already have, allow yourself this privilege of being changed for the better by labour that should still by labor that is still being done and that really should not be being done anymore. Mm, absolutely. And you know what? It's interesting that we've 
the word that has come up quite a bit in this conversation is like um like being good or being like a good person and robin d'angelo in her book white fragility brings this up as a tool that white people do use when the topic of race comes up and she brings up the good bad binary right like but i'm a good person you know but look i have like african friends or like my mate lou is asian you know like i'm cool with it like i'm actually cool with it and it's not about being good or bad or being intentionally good or bad it's about the impact of what is happening the unconsciousness that is happening like in the things that are said in the things that are done to probably some of your mates like you know your people of color mates that um you know as well perhaps want to opt and stay into the friendship because it's too difficult to leave or they don't want to bring it up with you because it could blow up the friendship because of the potential reaction that they could receive for me i've distanced myself from mates like that that haven't been willing to do the work just because it saves me the labor of having to bring it up with them because clementine i'm tired i'm so tired i've gotten to this age where i'm just like i don't need this in my life i'd rather just have good vibes so hey i'm gonna go through this book as well i actually haven't read it yet um and my my white kiwi girlfriend my pakia girlfriend is going to be reading it too what i think would be awesome is like if we could all actively do this book and then report back after a month or two months once things have been processed and I would love, love, love to hear from Motorcycle Girlfriend again. Will you come back in two months to have that conversation? I would love to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, on that note, Christina, I am so glad to have been able to have not just this part of the conversation, but this whole conversation with you today. Thank you so much for taking time out of, uh, particularly when you're unwell because of COVID. So I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing so generously of yourself and your perspective and also the experiences that you've had th across so many different areas in your life and bringing them here to the listeners of the Big Sister Hotline. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really awesome. Faustina, what's on for you next? I'm using this COVID lockdown time to um, eventually write. I've got, like, literally, if you can see this way, I have a whole whiteboard of things to do that are not related to writing. It's literally just kind of things that you can finally get to do now that you're staying at home. Um, but um, I really want to use this time to work on... Um, television shows, film, and potentially theatre writing. So just writing a whole lot in this time and also coming up with concepts of things that could potentially be made while we're all apart in isolation. Um, it might be, you know, people filming in their individual spaces, but then also um, like looking towards animation as well. I just want to work with the situation, work with what I got, hack the system, as I say. So I'm sweet.
You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all of the back episodes. Please, if you like it, then consider rating and reviewing it because every part helps. And you can send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. My guest on the hotline this week was Faustina Agoli, a writer, TV host, DJ, actor, and all-round excellent human being. You can find more of Faustina's work in the literary anthology Growing Up African in Australia, which will be available at all good independent bookstores. Also available at those independent bookstores are those books that Faustina mentioned, Leila Syed's Me and White Supremacy, Ijoima Aluo's We Need to Talk About Race, Rennie Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, and Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.